This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, welcome in. Lake Geek is live yet again. Sunday nights, February 28th, year of our Lord, 2021. What a moment, by the way. I mean... You had to have been there, I guess. So if you're watching the replay, listening to the replay, you have no clue what I'm talking about, but we've been frozen for about 45 minutes. Uh, Every single one of you in the live audience stuck around. And if you're just watching the replay tomorrow morning, again, irrelevant. However, I want you guys in the live chat to look at the code that I just submitted, because if you just sat through all that, I want you to remember the word that I just typed. You're going to be emailing me that one day for something free, and I don't even know what I'm giving you yet, but you got to get something for sticking around. So thank you so much. I want you, as I told you, to pretend like you never heard a word of what we did about an hour ago, because we're going to do the show from scratch. So we are jam-packed. We've got a whole lot to discuss. There are things that happened today. For instance, Michigan has had a huge day. We can't even talk about it. Florida State got a big commitment. We can't even talk about it because the show is so jam-packed. Eric Gilbert in the transfer portal. Yeah, again. This is the most recent entry into the transfer portal. We will discuss this crazy situation and the evolution with Alabama's quarterback room. We will discuss. We're going to have some some graphics that I want to show you that are just wild. It's incredible to see. Also, speaking of the transfer portal, there's a lot of you that are in the crowd of you know, the transfer portals ruining college football. I just want to talk you off the ledge a little bit tonight, so we will get to that. It's Georgia Tech Mood Tracker Night. I'm also going to discuss the next Tier 1 program in college football and how that program or those programs may get there. So as we get set to dive in, I want you to also note that we hit our latest threshold goal on Twitter. Every time we get to another 1,000 followers, at Late Kick Josh, by the way, I am throwing you something. You can call it a party, kind of a Zoom party, so stay tuned. Listen to the Tuesday morning podcast, and make sure you're following me on Twitter, again, at Lake Kick Josh, because details are going to come out on how you can get involved. It's going to be live to tape, which means we're going to record it live and then upload it with some fancy graphics on it later on, but it's going to be Zoom, so it's going to be facial recognition. You see me. You're tossing me questions. We're going to interact, you know, basically like we would do if we were sitting at lunch eating barbecue somewhere, as I like to say so many times, so stay tuned for that. Let's dive in, though. We've got a busy show. Eric Gilbert's in the transfer portal. If someone walked up to you today, for instance, and they said, hey, man, you hear about the latest with Eric Gilbert? You probably would have said, had you been at church and gone out to a restaurant to eat and you hadn't really checked your phone, you would have said, yeah, man, can't believe it. Left LSU, going to Florida. And then the guy says, no, 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 no. Not the latest, latest, the very latest. And then you shrug your shoulders. You're the shruggy emoji. And you say, no, what? He is in the portal again. And so here we go. There's the tweet. If you're watching on YouTube, 1.43 p.m., 243 Eastern, I guess, 143 Central. By the way, not from a Dollar General or a family dollar, which is where he initially committed to Florida. Just should be noted there. From a very nondescript location, Eric Gilbert says, I'm decommitting from the University of Florida. I'm reentering the portal. It should be noted that last sentence there, keep in mind, I will not be announcing my final decision until I am enrolled into school and on campus. Friends, this is why we capitalize transfer portal. Capitalize the T, capitalize the P. Everyone talks about Transfer Portal. 
This is why we capitalize Transfer Portal, because there is, to me, no inanimate entity out there capable of causing this much pain and suffering, and then also this much joy, and sometimes those emotions being felt over the span of about a two-week, three-week period within the same fan base. And that's what's happening with Florida right now. I personally am not going to take tonight to speculate on what's happening. I know what's being said. I, I've, I've read Twitter. like I've got access to the message boards just like you guys do. Independent of what the reasoning is and, and what's happening here, I just want to offer a few very initial thoughts, and then we'll roll on. It puts Florida's scholarship number at 87. So there are two things in play here. Number one, as is the case with most programs, you don't really have to have that 85 nailed down until it's time to play in the fall. And secondly, so the first thing is you could just have some other post-spring attrition, and that could naturally get you down under 85. But the second thing is they don't really have to be there. Because this year, it's widely expected at some point amongst head coaches that the NCAA is going to soften that 85 scholarship cap because of the COVID year. I don't know when it's going to come because we never get guidance on these sorts of things, but it should be coming. So as far as I can tell, the biggest impact on this whole Eric Gilbert in the portal, out of the portal deal is it's a hit to Dan Mullen's very recently found reputation as king of the transfer portal. And that's a crown that he had not even peeled the barcode off of before it got yanked off his head today. Now, the irony here, and it's kind of sad if you think about it, is uh, the more I'm hearing, the more I don't think that there was anything Dan Mullen could have done to prevent this. And so it's kind of, I think when all the details come out, if we do get them, I don't think history is going to look back on this as saying, boy, Dan Mullen really screwed up that Eric Gilbert situation. He lost Eric Gilbert. I don't think he lost him. I just think it ended up being a situation where they were never going to be able to have him. Obviously, they had what it took to get him on campus. To keep him on campus, a little bit different story. So again, that aside, those details will come out. We're not normally trying to be first around here to, to report stuff that's that's neck up in nature, let's say. But the irony here is I was looking through my DMs and I was looking through my email inbox uh, in the copious amounts of free time, as it turns out, that I've had in the last hour of my life. A lot of Florida fans, it seems like, are even more mad and more bent out of shape at Mullen today after having tasted a little bit of what was going to be like to have Eric Gilbert and then losing him than you would have been if you never got him. And it wasn't thought that Florida was really in the running there until they were. It's kind of the way Gilbert's initial recruitment was. It was thought to be Georgia, Bama, Georgia, Bama, boom, he's going to LSU. And then he's transferring out of LSU. It's going to be Georgia, maybe Alabama, probably Georgia. Yeah, he's going to Florida. Well, now he's out again. And no one knows. And I don't, to be honest with you, think Eric Gilbert even knows where he's going to land. And it may not even be at the forefront of the decision-making process right now. But it's a big deal. Now, make no mistake about it. This is a game changer. From a pure physical potential standpoint, Eric Gilbert's a guy that can change the outcome of a football game. He can turn an L into a W. That's a guy, as I told you last week, when he committed... I thought about all the the close games that Florida figures to play any given year, most notably in Jacksonville when they play Georgia, and that spreads always under a touchdown. And you got a one-possession game either way, and you think about what he can do on third and two, third and seven, goal line situations. He can stretch the field vertically. It's a big deal. It's not insurmountable, but it's a big deal. So Eric Gilbert back in the transfer portal, one of many things to happen on a busy, busy Sunday. All right, let's roll on here. I wanted to discuss something to do with Alabama. We don't talk about Alabama a lot on the show, do we? You notice that? 
Nick Saban's quarterback approach. How would you sum up Alabama's offense, by the way? If someone were to ask you just his entire career, describe the Alabama offense. I don't really know what you would say. It's a big week for Alabama because they landed five-star quarterback Ty Simpson. That happened on Friday, so that was after the Thursday show. So we haven't really discussed him, and I'm not going to do a breakdown of Ty Simpson tonight. I'm going to do it within the greater context of this fascinating piece that our buddy, good friend of the program, Aaron Suttles, who covers Alabama about as well as anyone in the country, by the way, for The Athletic put out the other day. And in just a couple of minutes, uh, Jesse's going to throw up some graphics that are they're really like a drop kick of recruiting nostalgia to the face. Even if you're not an Alabama fan, if you just follow recruiting, you're going to remember some of these names. And if you don't follow recruiting, you're going to look at the list of names and you're going to say, who who are these people? Who are you people? They're Alabama quarterbacks. So it wasn't always this way, is my point. You look at the you look at the death machine that Alabama is now. You guys remember, unless you're 10 years old, you remember what it was like when he first got to Alabama. So again, Aaron Suttles puts together this little piece in The Athletic. It wasn't little. It was, it, was a, it was a nice size piece. But it was in The Athletic after Ty Simpson commits. Ty Simpson, five-star quarterback, he commits to Alabama. And so, Jesse, let's, you know what? Let's go ahead and cue him up now. So Suttles puts in there about how the quarterback recruiting and development has evolved, and he puts a list of guys that have committed. These are Alabama quarterback signees under Nick Saban. For those of you listening on the podcast, let me just read all these names. This is from 07 to 2015. Nick Fanuzzi never started a game. Star Jackson never started a game. You remember A.J. McCarron. Remember Philip Sims, five-star quarterback out of Virginia, never started a game. Blake Sims didn't even commit as a quarterback and ended up winning an SEC championship. Philip Eli, remember him? No, you do not. Alec Morris, remember him? No, you do not. Cooper Bateman started one game against Ole Miss. That was it for him. Parker McLeod, you don't remember him. David Cornwell, you don't remember him. Blake Barnett, you do remember him. He also started one game. And then he was replaced by one Jalen Hurts. So if you're watching on YouTube, look at this nice, neat graphic that Jesse has up right now. And then I want to roll it, Jesse, to the next graphic. So that was 07 to 2015. Well, then we get to 2015 to present day, and we see guys like Jalen Hurts, Tua Tungavailoa, Mac Jones, and then there are two names that really you probably don't remember. You remember baby Tua, Talia Tagavailoa. He was there under special circumstances. I think we all understand that, but Lane Hatcher, you don't remember that name. Paul Tyson is on campus currently, four-star guy. Bryce Young, probably the starter this fall. I think a lot more is going to be made of that quarterback, quote-unquote, race than actually will exist. I'll put that out there in late February, by the way. Bryce Young's the starting quarterback there this fall, barring injury. Bryce Young there. Jalen Milrow is a stud, true freshman that they've got on campus. Ty Simpson will be next year, a stud, true freshman they'll have on campus. Do you notice a little uptick? Did you notice a little change in the caliber of quarterback there? So that was really interesting. And so then we draw it back to present day. What do we even make of all this? Like, if you didn't know anything, if you were a brand new college football fan, let's say, and you're watching Alabama, you watch the national championship game, you know they're really good. But I mean, what do we really know? Here's what's fascinating, always has been fascinating about Saban in Alabama. The people who continue to evolve, even when they're on top of their respective industries, are few and far between. They're like unicorns walking amongst us. They breathe the same air. They put on their pants the same way, but yet they don't function the way that normal people do. And what Nick Saban's done at Alabama is essentially... They've never not been on top of the sport. Ever since basically 2009 and beyond, they've never not been on top. But even having said that, it's like Saban was, he was a captain of a ship. He's out in the open ocean in the middle of the Pacific, and he's, he's captaining one of those big container ships. And then he decides, I don't want to lose any speed. 
I don't want to take on a drop of water, but I want to turn this big container cargo ship into an aircraft carrier. Get to work. And then they did it. You're not supposed to be able to do that. I don't know how well-versed you guys are in, in maritime construction. You're not supposed to be able to do that. You got to take her into port. You got to take on a little water. You got to tear her down to the hull and you got to rebuild her. That's not what Alabama did. They went from winning with Greg McElroy to winning with Tua Tonga-Vailoa, and they stayed on top of the sport the entire time. Figure that out. Well, recruiting has a lot to do with it. A transcendently great coach has a lot to do with it. But this was the hidden hope for a lot of teams once upon a time. As I said, they won a title in 09. They were on the border. They were on the precipice in 08. They won the title in 2009. They won it again in 11 and 12. But do you remember back then, even as they were winning three in a four-year stretch, you remember secretly what you thought. You thought to yourself, if my team has a good quarterback, like an elite quarterback, or if my team has a quarterback like Steven Garcia, who's really good, but he has an elite Saturday afternoon, we can beat Alabama. And that was, that was kind of the ray of hope that you took into playing Alabama because you knew they were going to play still, by necessity, low margin for error, high execution level football. They couldn't afford a ton of mistakes because they played ground and pound, ball control, play action type offense, and they got by with serviceable quarterback play. That was when people always threw around that game manager moniker. Well, that was this hidden hope. You know, if you get a, a Johnny Manziel performance, if you get a Nick Marshall performance, if you get the aforementioned uh, uh, Stephen Garcia, uh, like Bo Wallace, those kinds of quarterback performances, they could beat Alabama. And it was by design, obviously. It wasn't that Nick Saban hadn't figured anything out, but to him, he reasoned in his mind when he got to Alabama, I can build a roster that's so physically superior to the rest of this sport that I view it as a potential detriment to rely so heavily on quarterback. He, were, he would, for instance, look at how the Big 12 was doing things, and he said, if that quarterback goes down, that team goes down. I'm going to build my teams where we have excellent decision-making at quarterback, but we distribute the ball, and we win playing solid defense, and we just run over people. We bludgeon them to death. Well, then the sport slowly starts to evolve. So Saban can no longer afford to look at his quarterback position and say, I'm not going to rely on quarterback all that much because that to me is just a vulnerability. And if one guy goes down, you're telling me my entire machine doesn't work anymore. I'm not going to build a team that way. Well, then he starts to evolve. And then he starts to prioritize not only the quarterback that they're going to get in there. They always wanted great quarterback play. They always wanted elite traits in a quarterback. He changed his philosophy on how offense was going to work there. That's what changed. And that took, if you want to know about lack of parity right now, my buddy Parker over at Stats of War covers TCU very well. I mean, like really uncomfortably well on Twitter. He asked the other day, what is the biggest thing that has sucked the parity out of the room of college football the last 20 years? Well, the answer is two words. One of them's Nick and the other one's Saban. But really what happened is that day he looked at you and said, is this what you want college football to be? That's the day that he really took your hope away. Because up until that point, you could outdo them at quarterback. No one's doing it anymore. No one's really doing it anymore. Or if you beat them, you're not going to beat them because of average quarterback play and you just had a career day against them. If you beat them, you're probably going to end up having to beat them 55 to 48 or something like that. So all these guys now, let me tell you about the first world problems, by the way, that they have at Alabama. So right now, you've seen this at a couple of places. As you look at the points per game, this is absurd. looks like a typo. We're showing you on the YouTube feed the average points per game for Bama from 07 to 2020. Uh, once upon a time, it was right around 27 points per game. This last year, they averaged 48 and a half. And to be honest with you, that was with the starters off the field for the vast majority of second halves. 
Uh, so again, just absurd. And I know the overall arc of offensive football is such that every team has probably seen an increase from 07 to 2020 in points per game. Have they nearly doubled their offensive output like Alabama has? I probably think that's still what we would call a statistical anomaly. But back to the first world problems they got at Bama. Don't waste your time on this. If you're thinking about this, don't waste your time. You're looking at Bryce Young right now, and you're trying to figure it out. We got Bryce Young. Okay, let's see. He is um, He's going to start this year, and then he'll start next year. But then Ty Simpson will be on campus next year. So is he going to get mad that he can't start? And all the while, Jalen Milrose over here, like another former Jalen from the state of Texas that got overlooked, maybe he's the one that's going to end up shining. How do we keep all these guys on campus? Answer, you don't. Follow up to the answer. Don't worry about it. When is Alabama ever going to hurt again to get a quarterback, either via the transfer route or the high school route? They're not. They're going to be able to replenish that pipeline every year. These are beyond first world problems, worrying about how you're going to keep all your four and five star quarterback talent on campus. You're not. No one is. Not just Alabama. No one is. But how about that list, man? No, we get to talk about Philip Eli and Star Jackson in the same sentence and breath as Tua Tungavailoa and Mac Jones. What a time to be alive, especially if you're an Alabama fan. Want to move on, and I want to talk from many different angles tonight about the transfer portal. Transfer portal, we're going to talk about actually more before the end of the show. How is the transfer portal impacting college football, though? And I specifically want to ask you, could this be, could we be on the precipice of finding a new way to inject one or two more tier one programs into college football? Because right now it's very popular to ask about tier one program. So I talk about this from time to time. Very quickly, my qualifiers on this, I consider you a tier one program if you are top five caliber in results on the field, obviously, in recruiting, in engagement and investment, uh, your coaching staff, your roster, those things you either need to be at or inside of top five caliber. Now you could, you could mix and match there. You could be like, the seventh best roster in the country, but have the best staff in the country. You understand, though, you need to be floating around that range. And right now, Alabama's there, Ohio State's there, Clemson's there. Understand all the while, there is distance within tier one. I can't make a tier zero. So within tier one, there are little sub-tiers, if you will. I mean, Alabama's on their own level. But I'm putting Ohio State in there. I put Clemson in there. I put Oklahoma in there. I had some arguments with people back and forth today. I put a poll out on Twitter, actually. Do you consider Oklahoma a tier one? Now, I understand some of you just flat out can't consider a team a tier one program unless they either win a national title or play for a national title. If that's the way you look at it, that's fine. I'm not here to tell you how to define your tiers. I'm just telling you, I am judging it from this point moving forward, and I'm telling you Oklahoma is a tier one program for me. Georgia right on the precipice. Oklahoma, if you don't consider them there, they got to be right on the precipice. That's not what I'm asking you, though. I'm not even asking you who's there right now. I'm telling you, do me a favor, define your tier one, then start to define your tier two and even the top of tier three, and then I want you to tell me, who is the next team? Which two, maybe, or three, could be the next ones to elevate into tier one status, and how could it happen? Because right now, it's popular to suggest that tier one is closed. It's this closed club. For some reason, the college football playoff has built a huge wrought iron gate around tier one, and no one can get in or out. It's like people forget that in 2019, the LSU Tigers won a national title. So that's BS. I I dismiss that entirely. But the next most popular question is, Okay, well, then who's going to be next? That is a good question. Valid. And I want to suggest something to you. Here's what we don't have. 
Transfer portal era, it's still pretty new. So what we don't have is we don't have definitives. We don't have trends that we could look at yet. We don't have conclusions. We don't have winners or losers of the transfer portal era. Any given offseason, I can tell you right now, Oklahoma won this offseason in the transfer portal. Uh, Florida, up until about 15 minutes ago, it felt like they had. Now I don't know so much anymore. They still had a good offseason. But we don't know long term. Like we need five, 10 years before we really look back and see who is consistently doing things this way or that way. But I do want to look at this from a very macro point of view. The one thing that could impact this that I don't necessarily know that people are looking at is I think the transfer portal is not so much going to have an impact on tier one itself. The ones that are already there are going to stay there. The ones that are there are probably not going anywhere because of the transfer portal. But I'm working out with a buddy in the gym the other day, and we were kind of tossing this idea around. The more we did, the more it made sense. It could be that tier two is far more impacted by the transfer portal. And what I mean is this, there are programs already in the picture, Oregon, Texas A&M, Georgia, if you don't put them in tier one, Georgia's there, Florida, Notre Dame, like those are the kinds of programs. I know there are differing policies on how to handle transfers out there, but those programs, they're already in the picture. They're not getting run out of a building 56 to 10 if they play the elite teams, hopefully. My point is they're in the conversation. They're not terrible. They're not sucking water through a garden hose. And so they're already in the picture. What if they end up with, you know, top 10 averaging recruiting classes, but then they also mix in that formula year over year, the ability to go find two to five elite transfers, that whatever the art is for working the transfer portal, they perfect it. Because I want you to think about what separates tier one and tier two. The tier ones Everyone says all the time, how how many times have you heard this sentence? Tier one programs do not rebuild, they just reload. You hear it all the time. If you're breathing, you hear people say that. The tier two programs, they're still really good, but there are more glaring attrition-related holes on any given tier two roster entering a season. At Alabama, they don't have this problem because all their true freshmen are studs. So at Alabama, you have learned to just ignore Returning starters, number of returning snaps. You you don't even know the names. You just assume they're going to be good. Ditto at Clemson. Ditto at Ohio State. But at other programs, you don't think like that. It does matter at other programs. Well, I want you to think about potentially that gap, someone figuring out how to erase it by using the transfer portal. Because if you could shave that disadvantage you have relative to the tier ones, if you're Mario Cristobal at Oregon, if you're Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M, you view yourself in tier two, but it still hurts you when you lose a couple of defensive linemen. You're not operating at a championship caliber tier the next year. All of a sudden, you'd be able to fix that by getting some stud transfer in from Akron that just blew everyone away and exceeded expectation. We got a kid at Utah that wants to get himself a taste of SEC football. Bring him to College Station. Well, quickly, we can replenish. And all of a sudden, we don't have to rebuild either. All of a sudden, we can leverage that transfer portal. And now we get to find out what it feels like to be cool, just be a reloader. That could be the biggest impact. So I don't know that there's room for five or six tier one programs. In fact, I can tell you there's not. But it could give you an added benefit and could give you a little leg up if you're a tier two. And I think it could disproportionately positively impact tier two programs. So while everyone out there is complaining about the haves and the have nots, try and find ways in the sport like this, I think, for example, where you could end up injecting more parity. That precious parity you guys care so much about you could end up injecting some of it here by way of the transfer portal. Which brings me to my next point, which is not a point, it's an entirely entirely different segment, so let's roll on. I want to pose this as a question, okay? 
Is the transfer portal ruining college football? A lot of you say yes. I say no. And I want to say it like this. No. I want to say it very commonsensically, almost insulting, kind of makes me sound like a jerk, but don't worry, I'm going to back it up. I don't think it's ruining college football. I do think it's a temporary inconvenience, especially for those of you, to be honest, who are like me and are more traditional and you love to see things just done the way they always have been done. I get that, okay? But some things, believe it or not, I think this is one of them, will self-correct if you just give it a little bit of time. This is an era that we live in now societally where there's got to be a fix for everything. You notice that? If anyone's been out of shape, if anyone's mad about anything, there's got to be a fix for it. Sometimes the best fix is just to cross your arms, sit back, and wait on the situation to rectify itself. You don't even have to interject. It's like if you've ever watched baby birds try and work their way out of their egg, just keep your hands off the nest. Nature has figured out a way here, like God has designed this a specific way. He doesn't need you peeling back the eggshell off the bird's nose. Doesn't need it, believe it or not. Birds have existed without you for plenty long enough. The transfer portal, it's just now coming out of its egg. It's just peeking through, chirp, chirp, chirp. Just give it a little while. Now, I know what the cries are right now. The cry, uh, there are several of them. First things first. Well, what's it going to do with all these programs? It's leaving teams and coaches in a lurch. If, if they have a dozen guys that want to transfer out after spring practice, what are you going to do? Go recruit high school kids in May? Like Dabo said the other day. No, we can't do it. You ask me what it's going to do? It's going to suck in the short term. That's what it's going to do. You got to suck it up and you got to next man up. And if it's not already on a t-shirt, it should be. You just got to, that's how you have to be. You can't do anything about it, is my answer. In the short term, the very, the very micro term, you can't do anything about it. So suck it up, next man up. That has to be the answer short term. However, I want you to think about the flip side of that coin. I don't know the very latest as of this moment number, but as has been very well documented, there are far more kids in the transfer portal than there are spots on rosters. This is not going to end well. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure that out. So then here's cry number two. What about these poor children? What about all these kids? They're making terrible decisions. We need to step in and make the decision for them. No, you don't. Same ones, same, same ones of you out there crying they should be able to profit off their name, image, and likeness, which I agree with. You're telling me they're an adult, but then they're, they're not an adult in this sense. They can't make decisions for themselves. Yeah, they can. It's just going to be a really poor outcome. Sometimes you got to let folks screw up, and it may, it may derail the rest of their athletic career. Tough. Suck it up. Next man up. It applies to the program. Well, it's the same coin flipped upside down. It, it applies to the player, too. Let it work itself out is what I'm saying. Because here's what really needs to happen. The players of the future who eventually will be in college and will be eligible and on the fence about transferring, they are watching right now. They're 13 years old. They're 14 years old. Their parents need to be watching right now. Their high school coaches need to be watching. College coaches need to be watching. You've got to learn lessons over this stuff. And I can tell you right now, here's the big flip that I think is coming. Currently, it's just assumed that all the risk when it comes to discussing the transfer portal is on the program. The program is the, is the entity that stands to lose players. It stands to have its roster slashed. And so the program assumes all the risk. That's not true. The big flip in perception is coming when you find out how many kids are left out in the cold because they went into the transfer portal and then they're looking for the way out and there's no landing spot. What do you do? Well, you may go back where you came from they may not want you back. You may have to go to a lesser destination. You may have to partially pay your own freight or your college football career may be over. And it may disproportionately impact the rest of your life because of going in that portal. 
you're going to find out that there's a lot more risk on the shoulder of the player going into the portal than there is the program having to wave goodbye to the player. Nebraska football, it's always going to be there. Whether I, as an outside linebacker buried on the depth chart, whether I choose to stay in Lincoln or not, Nebraska is going to suit up. They're going to field a team this coming fall. I may go into that portal and never be heard from again. Nebraska will be okay. The teams will be okay. The individual player, once it starts to be more well-publicized, the risk and the consequence on some of these guys who don't find a landing spot, mark my words, the transfer portal will correct itself. If you'll just keep your hands out of it, the transfer portal will end up correcting itself. So to answer the question we led with, no, the transfer portal is not ruining college football. It's a hindrance right now. You're getting used to it. It's new in the room. You know, you got to introduce yourself and you got to live with it for a little while. It'll correct itself. It'll be okay. Let's wrap with this. I have gotten inundated, you know how rarely I use that word, with requests for the Georgia Tech Mood Tracker. The Mood Tracker is simply us taking the temperature of a fan base, and it's time to do Georgia Tech football tonight. And so Georgia Tech, the Mood Tracker, points simply to one word, fire. Not in a crowded theater, but fire. You know the word that comes after ready and then aim. And in life, just like college football, there are seasons for all three. There's a season to ready yourself, and then there's a season to prepare and get ready and aim. And then, this is the most fun part, the one that you want to skip forward to, the fire season. That's what season it is right now at Georgia Tech. I cannot overstate how well Jeff Collins and his staff have handled the first two years on campus. They had a pandemic thrown at them like everyone else did, but they also had what I call a GU rebuild, a ground-up rebuild, that they inherited. I'm not speaking ill of Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson had some good years there. I don't care if Paul Johnson had won a championship the year before he stepped down. They were going to have to ground up rebuild because the fact of the matter is they weren't doing what Paul Johnson was doing. They didn't want to do that. So you can't overstate enough how well Jeff Collins and his crew have handled things because they stepped in and they really knew they had a two-front battle to fight. The first battle was internal. Okay, that's rebuilding your roster, defining your critical factors, you got to cast a new vision for recruiting. You got to familiarize yourself with the Georgia high school recruiting scene and beyond. Like, you got to build your infrastructure. You got to fill out your strength staff, your nutrition staff, your support staff. All that stuff's boring to you. You don't really care about that. That's the internal fight. Equally, if not more important, though, for Jeff Collins, and he knew this, was the external battle. The external battle was to work on selling Georgia Tech. And what they did brilliantly is they took Georgia Tech and they put it in this box and sealed it up and they shipped it all over the place. And on that box, there were three letters, ATL, and then there were three numbers, 404. They put Georgia Tech inside Atlanta, which geographically it had always been, but it hadn't been marketed that way. It had not been properly harnessed. And so they did that. And they also really had a collective emphasis on culture, all in, basically the stuff everyone preaches, but not everyone is about. They've been about that. And also what they did because of that is there's a lot of synergy in the messaging around Georgia Tech. Everyone says the same thing. Everyone sells the same thing. Everyone wears the same thing. They're right down to the Twitter bios for the coaching staff. It's all the same messaging. And you know what? A critical majority of that fan base has bought it. And here's the brilliance. They've been bad record-wise the first two years. They've won three games each of their first two seasons. You would think to yourself, this is the South. I don't care if it's the SEC or not. This is the South. They take football really seriously down here. You would think if you didn't know anything about Jeff Collins and the staff and you just saw the records, oh man, hot seat this year, right? Oh boy, I bet that fan base has been out of shape. They're not. They're not at all. And the reason is because Jeff Collins and his staff stepped in and understood we got a couple of years that are going to be tough. 
How do we keep the fans engaged? How do we keep the community engaged? And it's been full steam ahead, and this is a clinic in how to handle one of those ground-up rebuilds to the point where you've won six games total the first two years in, and yet you've still got really incredible passion. In fact, more passion and energy around that program than some others, even in their own conference, that have been better record-wise on the field than Georgia Tech has so far. But here's what fire really means. I mentioned the mood is fire. It doesn't mean everyone is bathing in the Kool-Aid and they're just blindly all in and they're buying that Georgia Tech's about to be a perennial double-digit win team. They still want to see results. There still may be some healthy skepticism. There's nothing wrong with that. This is a results-oriented business at the end of the day. Jeff Collins and his staff, they're big boys. They understand that. They get how this works. But there are basically, if you're kind of closer to that fan base, I was talking back and forth with some of you this week, there are these three little subgroups, really, that I've narrowed it down to uh, that make up the Georgia Tech fan base. Subgroup one, I think this is a pretty small subgroup, but subgroup one is a group that really was married to the old school way of doing things. They liked Paul Johnson. This group also does not believe that Georgia Tech has what it takes to seriously compete for ACC championships and you know push for a college football playoff conversation entry, at least. They don't believe that. I dismiss that crowd because I philosophically disagree with that. And I think that's a small subgroup. Subgroup two is totally opposite. Subgroup two is all in. They love everything about Jeff Collins. They love the energy he's brought. They love the branding. They love the passion. They think he's doing it the way they always wanted it to be done. They want results, but they're all in and they've bought into the vision and they have the patience. And then there's group three, I think there's a healthy chunk of the Georgia Tech fan base that is a blend of they liked Paul Johnson. There was a lot to like about him. They respected him. They they appreciated him. But yet they also knew it was time for something new. And when Jeff Collins came in, they fully embraced him. Okay, It's about as antithetical a way of doing things as possible, but yet both can work. And they've embraced it. But now, so three years in, they would sit back and they'd say, love Jeff, love him. But we want to see results. And that's fine. It's fire season. You've had the ready season. You've had the aim season. Now you get the fire season. You look around and you think, huh, we've got a quarterback returning finally. I haven't been able to say that around here in a couple of years. Well, now we've got a roster that three years in and beyond, it should reflect a lot more the thumbprint of the coaching staff and the head coach that's running things here. So you had a two-front battle you had to fight when you got there. The internal, the rewiring of the program, Jeff Collins and his staff have handled that behind the scenes, and ultimately the results on the field will bear out how good a job that they've done there. But the external fight, the second front they've had to fight, it's been brilliantly waged, and they've gotten people even more on board. They've gotten the fan base even more engaged, winning three games a year the first two seasons, than a lot of other programs out there have winning far more but not having that engagement. So all I want to tell you, as I've told you for a couple of years now, ever since the Collins staff arrived in Atlanta, I am a firm believer in the direction of this program. And what's going to happen is it's going to seem to you like they're having success all of a sudden. It's not all of a sudden. It's happened when they're winning three games a year. You just don't see the root taking place. Uh, they had to, they didn't have to just trim the hedges. They had to completely salt the earth, and they had to torch it and build from the ground up. And it takes a little while. But once that culture takes root, and you got a good coaching staff over there, uh, they got, I think, a very good recruiting plan. I believe you can recruit to Georgia Tech at a level that makes you competitive with the big boys in college football. Some don't. We disagree there. Fire. That's what the mood is around Georgia Tech circles right now. And I endorse that because I feel the exact same way. Good show tonight. Cannot believe this many of you stuck around. Had a lot of technical difficulties, and so I appreciate that. Uh, we'll try and get that rectified. In the meantime, 
Again, remember that, uh, remember that code that I gave you. Only those of you watching live right now are going to know what that code was because I'm going to erase this live chat as soon as this show is over. So thank you so much for staying tuned in. And um, remember, follow me on Twitter at Late Kick Josh. Be listening to the Late Kick podcast. Details coming for the Zoom party, for lack of a better term, that we are having and recording probably this coming week if not this week, early next week, producer Jordan on the podcast side of things is going to work with us there. You may even see his face. I don't know how open he is to that. Uh, so got a lot of stuff going on. Offseason doesn't exist. It's a dirty word. Thank you so much for joining us. For Director Emeritus Colin and the entire crew in Connecticut, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great early start to the week, and God bless.